everyone. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here for our season previews for the Big Ten, and today is number 11, the Northwestern Wildcats. So they're an interesting story of last year. I mean, they were the the surprise team, I think, even more so than Purdue. Oh, yeah. Uh, Northwestern was, I mean, Northwestern was predicted to be pretty terrible because they'd had, despite the early success with Chris Collins in 2017 making the tournament, they're sort of everyone's darling. They had a great recruiting class. They just kind of fell apart, were unable to perform in the upcoming seasons and had seemed to sort of slide every year. And to the point where last season we were talking about you know, potential hot seat for Chris Collins, right. even though it was Northwestern. And I think what's interesting about them, too, is last year they lost Pete Nance. They lost um, Ryan Young uh, to transfers. And it looked like they had lost a core of their team and not really been able to replace it. And so there was very little reason for optimism. I mean, otherwise, the team was pretty much the same as it was the previous year, for the most part. Uh, and yet they outperformed everyone's expectation last year in ending second in the Big Ten <laughs> which was I mean, a huge surprise, obviously. I can't even remember. Did Chris Collins win Coach of the Year last year? Or was that No, I believe Painter did, but... Um, Painter did, yeah. But Collins... Uh, you know what? I do have some vague memory of Collins winning an award. I'm not sure that it was Coach of the Year, but but he he probably deserved it. Yeah, I mean, what he did is... I, I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 the solution for Northwestern last year is that they actually played really great defense. Offensively, they still weren't very good. um, But they were a menace on defense, and that was what propelled them to so much success. And the the loss that Michigan State had early in the season, that sort of the first half or the first portion of the Big Ten, you know, where you play a couple games uh, in December, they came into Breslin, they beat Michigan State, and it looked like a really bad loss for Michigan State. You know, everyone was down in the dumps about that. And I think, you know, Michigan State did not play well, but it also was probably a you know it's a sign of things to come for the northwestern wildcats that they actually were competent and 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 the thing is that that loss came on the heels of northwestern getting run out of the gym by Pitt. right and Pitt was a team this is why you got to be careful early in the season with making judgments people assumed you know Pitt had just been awful worse than northwestern year after year and there were not high expectations for that team last season. And they went out in the Big Ten ACC Challenge and just ripped Northwestern apart just before Northwestern beats MSU. So it really yeah. felt like a bad loss. But in the end, not bad. Now, you mentioned yeah. it was it was defense that they hung their hats on, and that's absolutely right. They were the 22nd-ranked defense overall in the country. That was the thing they did best by far. They played... You know, I, I always I, I talk here a lot, and we've already talked about it in regard to Penn State. My deep skepticism of the wisdom of full court pressure—I think it just does <laughs> not work at the Big Ten level. But you can get some things done with aggressive half court pressure, and right. Northwestern did that, and their guards were all really good at that phase of the game. They finished 35th in the country in turnover percentage, meaning uh, percentage of possessions that an opponent turned the ball over in. They were also really good against twos at number 42 nationally. So what that means is they weren't made to pay for that trapping. Teams weren't beating it and getting a layup or a dunk the way they ran through, say, Illinois when Underwood first got there. Um, right, right. And that number was helped by the 27th best block percentage, which meant that it wasn't just the guards. It was also the guys in the front court, the back line of the defense were doing a really good job protecting the rim. Now, all that was great work on defense on offense. It was <laughs> same as before an <laughs> ugly story other than in one area. And we talk about this stat a lot. If, and it's, it's not something that Michigan state typically does. So, We disregard it for MSU. Izzo's just got a different model. But for a lot of teams in the Big Ten, if you can limit the mistakes that you make, meaning the number of possessions you're turning the ball over without getting a shot up, 
that can cover for a lot of sins. And that was the Northwestern story. They were number 11 in the country in turnover percentage. They were really good both ends in turnovers. They were winning the turnover battle substantially, game in, game out. Um, that mitigated a lot of bad shooting. I mean, these guys the, were the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Number 282 in the country in threes and number 311 in twos. That's really bad. But they didn't turn it over. <laughs> they shot free throws really well. They came in just under 76% as a team, which is an outstanding number. And you just you put it all together, and it was those things and just a, a high degree of intensity and an effort level and a motor that they played with. That was enough. You know, it was a, it was a fine line and a, and a tight margin, I think, that Northwestern had to play with but they were on the right side of it more often than not. And for them to get back to the NCAA tournament, um, that was, uh, that had finished second in the league. That was a hell of an accomplishment with a team that was, you know, not overly, overly talented in my view. Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, you know, I wonder with, uh, I guess we'll go into the players departing and the players returning uh, in just a moment, but a lot of that, I think, was the guards, as you mentioned, it was Bowie and Adige who were exceptional as far as uh, able to get in your face, defend, uh, and put ball pressure yep. on. And, and Chase Adige especially, I think, was was the better of the two. And with his long, gangly arms, he was able to harass you and still on, maintain on position. So, for sure, yeah. Yeah, defensively, yeah. yeah. So he was... The, you know, I think the offensive end, I think Bowie is far, far better than Adige, although Adige would be kind of streaky, but um, very much yeah, it was so. a, it, it was a, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing because again, they were the same players from the year before. And, and I don't know if that was, um, I don't feel like they, I, I feel like their, their defense was played differently. And I don't know if that was because Nance was. was not there anymore, uh, that they just decided to apply more ball pressure that they hadn't been doing the seasons before. Yeah, I think it was an adjustment by Chris Collins that he realized. Uh, I think I think for starters, look if they had if they had had Pete Nance and Ryan Young come back, they would have looked at things differently. I think they would have looked at it and said, "Okay, we can be a pretty good offensive team," and maybe they play more or less the way they had previously. But my mm -hmm. this is just a guess. I don't know this, but my suspicion yeah, sure. is he looked at his roster and said, "Okay." Um, the strength of this team, I've got three guards that can get it done. I got one front court guy that can play efficiently, but he's never been a high volume scorer. I'm in Robbie Baran. I'm, I'm not going to be, a, I get centers that nobody knows. Um, I'm not going to be able to play conventionally and be competitive. And so mm -hmm. he looked at the roster he had, and I think he made, my guess is he made a decision to try to play to their strengths, which he correctly surmised would be applying ball pressure in the half court and just being really, really intense with the effort level that they played with. I mean, they were the team too. It should not be forgotten. I think they were the team that um, delivered the blueprint on how you could beat Purdue with Zach right. Eady. Because if you remember, yep. they beat them at a point where Purdue wasn't losing to anybody. I don't know if they, I don't think they'd taken a big 10 loss yet at the time Northwestern beat them and the way Northwestern beat them. I think the conventional wisdom was always, okay, well, you got a double Edie Northwestern yeah. said mm -hmm. double. No. How about we send three guys, maybe four. <laughs> and we just, yeah. and we just go all out to disrupt him, try to strip him, make life hell on him. And we will live with the consequences of that. If he kicked the ball out. That's what they did, and they won, and you saw other teams do it, and even a team that had far less in the way of physicality and personnel, like um, like Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, was able to do it to great success in the NCAA tournament. But the first team who really did that against them was Northwestern. And I think, you know, it, it goes to show that there's, um, you know, there are always trade-offs. We always talk about this in the show, right? Like, if you... If you trade if you offs thing, in life, like you, in right, everything. It is, exactly. And so you're, you're like, okay, we're going to leave shooters open and, you know, 
you kind of go with you have to you have to accept some sort of thing, right? And yep. so that the thing that you accept there is that you're going to leave open shooters open. Yeah. But the calculation is, you know, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to try and come back and put a hand in the face, or are you just going to totally dare them like fairly Dickinson did and just say yeah. it's going to be wide open, so open you're going to actually have to think about it too much? And yep. so that was a uh, uh, interesting strategic moves and. And, you know, I think that's this is a good reflection on Chris Collins, I think, in general, why he's a good coach. And this is what we had always assumed that he was pretty good. You don't know, I think, until, you know, obviously proves in the pudding, right? But I think the fact that you have a guy who, in some respects, changes the way he coaches based on his personnel and the way he, um, you know, the circumstances. I think we thought we saw the same thing Micah Shrewsbury last year, where he has yep. a weird team. For sure. And he just coached a totally different style, right? I mean... In some ways, you could say, well, some coaches you think are really good, but they only coach one certain way. Like, the, if you don't play that certain way, they, they have difficulty, uh, you know, adjusting. I, I think it's an interesting question, and I think a lot of people default to the assumption that um, the guys who are really good are the guys who change it up, the guys who can look at their roster year to year and say, well, I've got to adjust to the personnel I have. And I understand the case for that. But I do mm -hmm. think there's also a case for people who say, hey, I've got core principles that I believe in. And so I recruit to that and I am going to emphasize it every year. Now, I think sometimes that is more of the Tom Izzo mold is what I just sure. said. Mm -hmm. um, I think he has, you know, a lot of people go to Simpleton Town with that. They don't realize that he does make pretty significant adjustments every single year. I still maintain, I mean, we had Mike Garland on what twice last year, three times. And twice, yeah. I, we asked yeah. him about it and he insisted you know, the offensive rebounding. He insisted, right. no, no, they care about, I'm sorry. I was watching those games. And when I watched <laughs> on TV, there would be possessions where a shot would go up and on my screen, so, you know, through most of the lane, at least, is on the screen, not a Spartan in sight. You can't right. tell me that they played it the same way they always had. They just, they didn't. And he adjusted because he figured, I think he figured, I don't have the personnel to do that well enough. We're going to emphasize getting back and, um, and we'll live with it, you know, and it worked. Yeah. So, I, but, but I, I don't want to minimize the, because I think you, I guess my only point in saying that is I think you could be a great coach in either of those ways. Yes, I think so. And you can be a bad coach in the opposite, right? Absolutely. Like you can be too stubborn yep. and you can be always in the fly, helter skelter and, and not, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah, I think, 100%. I think it's just, I think it's just, an, uh, yeah, the fact that you can be a good coach in many different ways. Yep. I think it impresses me, right? That. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and look, and Chris Collins, I think give him credit because as you said at the outset, heading into last season, I think there was a belief that, okay, he did great getting him the tournament for the first time in school history, but this feels like it's kind of run its course because he got a recruiting bump from that. He was actually landing people that other big time, big time programs wanted, and it just wasn't working for whatever reason. Yeah. So it felt like the momentum had ebbed away. Well, then last year happens. And a lot of it, I, that's the thing. I think last year's team, you can make a good argument actually had even more success, certainly in the regular season than his first tournament team did. And that happened, even though I believe it was an inferior roster. I think his first tournament team, was actually a really good team. I think he had a lot of yeah, good players. Bryant McIntosh, yeah. Vic Law, yeah. uh, Pardon. Those guys, were. that was a good team. <clears throat> this one, I don't think quite stacks up to that one in terms of quote-unquote talent, but yet they achieved so much. A lot of that, you got to give credit to Chris Collins. And I think, too, I'll, I'll say, and I, this is the thing that, unless you're like really, truly inside the team, you could not know. But it certainly felt to me like that team played with a level of effort and um, intensity that I haven't seen from a Northwestern team. Like I, uh, you know, you saw that on the defensive end, and they just they really worked every single possession really hard. And and I don't know if that's a reflection of you know do they lose um, the 
player departures did that make a difference? Now yeah. they were more buoy and Adija's team, and that's just their personality, and they were able to sort of express that more. I, I don't know, but they definitely seem from that effort level to be to ramp up, a, you know, an ex, extra couple levels, and I think that was the reason that they were so much more successful last year than previously. It's a it's a funny thing, but usually, in my my observation, usually if you play hard, like really hard, good things are going to happen. I mean, I, I, that sounds simple, but honestly, I can remember when um, the Pistons were going through their rebuild with what eventually became the going to work era and they won the NBA title in, in 2004. A couple years prior to them winning it, they had, you know, if you, if people remember, Grant Hill had opted to, he wanted out. So they, they did a sign and trade deal with Orlando and they got Ben Wallace and Chucky Atkins mm-hmm. back for him. And after they made that deal, it was Jerry Stackhouse and then a bunch of guys that nobody really knew. And, and remember they had never been able to have a real breakthrough when Grant Hill was there. So there were no right. expectations, but that team by NBA standards played incredibly hard and they managed to break through a little bit. They won like 50 plus games, but people were still really skeptical of them because they said, well, that's all fine for the, for the regular season, because a lot of times the opposition isn't playing that hard. And this is even before right, the right. days of load management and okay, you're winning some games because you play harder than everybody else, but that doesn't matter when the playoffs come around. Well, that proved to be wrong. They actually had some success in the playoffs right away. And then a year or two later, that template is exactly what they use to win the NBA title. They never stopped, you know, in yeah. college with Northwestern, it was noticeable how hard they played mm-hmm. relative to anybody else they were facing. And I think they had to, I think it was just like yeah, those business well, sure. teams. They would not have been successful if they, if they, uh, you know, they big timed it, but it worked. Yeah. And whoever the credit goes to, I imagine it's probably got uh, uh, many, many fathers, but um, yes. <laughs> it was important. And I always feel like you can't, you can never, I, I think every coach probably emphasizes that. And just whether you get that response from your players is a largely a reflect, reflection on the players they, and they, sort of their they do, attitude, but, right? But there are, there are certain things though, like, like playing uh, aggressively trapping, if that's, you know, if that's a part of your core and at least for that season, that's a good way stylistically to get guys energized, you sure. know? So there were certain things they did that I think also played into it in terms of the style they played. All right. Well, uh, let's go on to players departing before we begin that. I'd like to remind you that if you find the show helpful, if you like it, if you want to keep it, um, keep us going, we really appreciate all the support. Those of you who are members on Patreon or uh, recurring members on Substack. We thank you so much. Um, if you want to do a one-time gift via PayPal or Venmo, that's also very encouraged. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, we also encourage that as well. You can get a hold of me at uh, eric at tiffnots.com. You can also, if you want to find out ways to support the show, either uh, one-time gifts or recurring gifts, you can certainly go on over to tiffnots.com slash support. And there you can find all the various ways you can do that. That is greatly appreciated. It helps us keep our expenses and keep this show going. All right. So let's talk about the players departing. Uh, the first one, the most obvious one, the biggest one is Chase Adige. Uh, he had an opportunity to come back for his COVID year. He decided to tra- uh, just end his career, I guess, really, with his college. He went undrafted in the NBA. 6'5", senior, he averaged 14.1 points a game. Uh, as we mentioned before, very streaky, 37, 33, and 83 shooting. Uh, he also led the team in turnovers causing and, you know, he had 81 steals in 34 games. He was the, uh, I guess he was the the head guy when it came to that ball pressure. Yeah, he really was. And, you know, it was disappointing, I think. I think they thought they had a shot to get him come back and uh, the COVID year. And if he had, I think it would have changed. It would have been enough that it maybe would have changed where I would have put them by a couple of slots. He sure. was that important. Um, offensively, you know, look, he was a tough watch because yes. it really questionable shot selection and not a super efficient shooter. You look at the numbers, 37, 33, that's, that's not great, but 
they so desperately needed scoring that he still mattered a lot because at least he was willing to take shots and capable of hitting <laughs> right. them some of the time. Defense, though, was where he really had his, his calling card last year. Uh, that was his calling card, and he was really, really effective. So, yeah, they're good. to say they're going to miss him is an understatement. Uh, so next would be Robbie Barron. He played uh, four years in Evanston, and I, you know, this is another one I think they probably thought they had a chance to bring him back for COVID year. Yeah, he averaged seven and a half points a game, four and a half rebounds a game, on 37, 35, and eighty five shooting. He ended up deciding to do a grad transfer, I guess you'd call it, to Virginia yep. Tech. And uh, you know, I, he's a guy who was a was a good shooter and he was the one who i know you had always made the contention he never shot enough and yeah. he shot more this year but still even not that much right only averaging seven and a half points a game but he was he's very good and he's definitely gonna be a missed in the offensive end for that he, team. he is but i will say as last season wore along and as northwestern really started to put it together baron's role did reduce a bit Um, you know, he wasn't playing quite the same level of minutes he had been earlier in the season. He was a guy, if I was a Northwestern fan, I would have found him very frustrating over four years because as you said, (laughs) and I, I kept saying it every year when we do these, I would mention it, that this is a guy who in terms of his efficiency and when you watched him, the eye test even looked the part, except that he just didn't do very much in volume. And that matters in the end. It's great to, you know, be a 40% shooter from three, but if you're only taking one a game, <laughs> you're not helping your team that much, you know? Right. So that was always the knock on him. I just feel like they were never quite able to get out of him what it seemed to me he had in him potentially. Now I'm not putting that entirely on Chris Collins. That's on Robbie Barron too, but yeah, kind of a surprise to me that he transferred out. But again, you don't know the inner workings, the dynamics with yeah, the team. Exactly. He may have just figured it was time for a fresh start. He was able to go to an ACC school in Virginia Tech, so he's going to play at a high level again. Um, but I think as opposed to Audige, where I don't see the obvious um, replacement who does everything that Audige did well, I think in Barron's case, they can probably survive this. Uh, so next departure will be Tyus Verhoeven, 6'9", tra- grad transfer, uh, started a couple games, ended up just being the reserve to Nicholson. This is one we had talked about beginning the season where Northwestern would be at the five spot, losing their two, uh, their starter and their reserves right. uh, with Ryan Young. We didn't really know what was going to happen, so thought was might be this Verhoeven. Uh, he averaged two and a half points a game and f- two and a half rebounds a game, so not a huge loss, but um, anyway, he's, he's now all gone done with college he met he mattered in the sense that you know he gave him 16 minutes a game and a big body who gave them some physicality and good defense and that was enough you know you need you need guys like that to play a role so he did that not a star by any means but you know they've got to find somebody else to handle that role and finally uh, julian roper so he he looked like he was going to be doing quite a bit and the average four and a little 4.4 points a game and 3.7 rebounds a game shot 45, 42 and 46. Uh, but he ended up entering the portal and transferring to Notre Dame. So he's going to go play for Shrewsbury. Yeah, th- this was a big loss and it might not look that way from the stats, but you know, Julian Roper was banged up last year. He, he only played in 15 games. Um, I thought he showed a lot of potential as a freshman. I was a fan of his going back to high school. He's a Detroit area kid. He played at Orchard Lake St. Mary. So I saw him a lot in AAU when he was growing up. And, you know, there was a, there was a big three in his class in state with um, Kobe Bufkin, Jade Nakins, and Pierre Brooks. And then Roper mm-hmm. was the fourth guy. And I think he he sometimes got forgotten a little bit but i really thought he was a great get for the, for northwestern the kind of guy they don't always get in that he was both skilled and athletic as a wing that seems to be a type that historically they've had problems getting so i was really bullish on him and then he he really looked good down the stretch of his freshman season so i thought he was set for a big step forward last year but he wasn't really able to stay healthy and yet 
you look at the numbers from an efficiency point of view, 45, 42, yeah. pretty damn good. And, and I think he's going to be a good player at Notre Dame. I'll be very surprised if he's not again. I don't know what went into the transfer. Um, but that's a loss because if he was coming back, I would have bet on him having a breakout season. I'm that big a fan and he could have physically, at least he would have been a great replacement for Audige. He would have been able to step right in. I don't know that he would have been as good defensively. I think he's far better offensively, but at least physically he gives you some of the same things. Yeah. He has a length that can uh, harass people. Uh, So we're going to go to returning players in just a moment. Just a reminder to visit our sponsors. And one of our great sponsors of the show are the brothers that just do gutters. And I mentioned this uh, just a day or two removed from a wicked storm that came through. And man, I tell you, you are not kidding. It was bad as we're recording this. It was, you know, tornadoes and stuff. We're recording this like in late August. I know this will release in a couple weeks in September, but Man, I tell you, to not have to worry about the stuff that goes on with, you know, the water coming down and stuff. I know it seems kind of dumb to talk about gutters in a basketball show, but it is an important thing in your house if you've got to, or your business. You got to have that stuff working properly because if it doesn't, it causes all sorts of problems. Flooding your basement, um, you know, pool, standing pools of water in your uh, in your yard or maybe just have spilling over the side like I had and just my chance of having a garden was totally ruined by just water pouring off the side so uh, they take care of all that stuff they make sure if you know if you had damage it certainly can repair it they can replace it they can just clean out leaves and junk that's in there they can put leaf guards on they do all that stuff very efficient efficiently uh, at a good price uh, you can get 10 percent off if you just mentioned final four you on the east side of the state greg and his team will take care of you in the metro detroit area if you're on the west side of the state of the grand rapids to the lakeshore uh, kurt and his team will take care of you so go to brothersgutters.com Links to the specific either east side or west side is in the description below. You won't regret it. It's an important thing to make sure and that you have taken care of, and you want the, the right people doing it, the people who actually specialize it. So you can't go wrong with the brothers that just do gutters. All right, so returning players, obviously the most important one is Boo Booey. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, coming back for his COVID year. He's, I think this is his ninth season at, in Evanston. <laughs> yeah. um, he, <laughs> he's well, Michigan seven... State fans feel that way especially because – as as the story goes, he always seems to show up big for MSU. He he does he has, he has had a lot of good games. Although I would say in defense of Boo Booey, he has a lot of good games against a lot of teams. So I think we should take exception. Yeah, but he was having us. them against MSU earlier in his career, where he was much more erratic. There's yes, something right. about MSU that he's for whatever reason. Yeah, he's he uh, he sees that green, I guess, and sees money. Uh, so he shot. He averaged 17.3 points a game on 41, 32, and 87 shooting. Led the team in assists, uh, two to one assist to turnover ratio. Uh, you know, very good defensively. He was a very a great all around point guard, a great leader. And um, I don't know. I mean, there's not much, not much more as far as accolades you can say for him. He was he was their most important player. He's I think yeah. the glue that held him together. And and the late game situations. He didn't make many mistakes, and if you try to foul him, he'd you know hit his free throws. So yep. he's just a great point guard. I don't know what to say besides that. It's yeah, great for them. It's a great foundation for them for the next season. I I have to say, you know, early in his career, I was kind of skeptical on him as a point guard because he was he was a little bit wild in his shot selection, and I didn't know that I believed that he had um, that he had the mindset. But he's proven me wrong for sure. Um, he's settled into being a very capable point guard. Now, the one knock on him, you look at those numbers and say, well, 41% from the floor, not terrible for a point guard. 32% from three, you'd like to see that a little better. But he's he has had seasons where he's been better. Two years prior as a sophomore, he was 36% from three. So he's proven mm-hmm. capable of being better. I think the problem is, as I mentioned, sometimes shot selection is an issue for him. And it's also the case that he's got to play an outsized role on offense for Northwestern to be able to score enough points to win games. So what comes with that oftentimes is a player kind of trying to make things happen themselves, which means your shot, your shot selection is not going to be ideal. Um, right. I think the best thing for him would be his teammates picking up a little more of the slack and he can be a little more discerning, but 
Look, I think the bottom line is I expect kind of more of the same when push comes to shove. I think they need him to be really aggressive offensively, and I think he will be. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that 32% is probably a reflection of the fact that you had less post-presence with Nance that you had this sure. before. That, so that and, and just, you know, as opposed to how the, the pace they played with on defense, on offense, they're still relatively deliberate. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he's a guy, like a lot of point guards, when the shot clock's winding down, right? Yeah, you get grenade. the grenade, yeah. <laughs> uh, next returning player, Ty Berry, 6'3", senior, average 8.5 points a game on 34, 29, 81 shooting. Uh, obviously, he's he's been better shooting. He's had time stretches where he was shooting better than that uh, from, from deep. Uh, he also had 4.8 rebounds a game, and so he was a very effective player uh, and a good person to bring back for the next season for sure. Yeah, but they, they need him to be better. I mean, 29% from three is not going to cut it. And the thing is, his first two years, he was 37 and 39%. So we right. know he's capable of of shooting the ball better. And they need him to. With Audige gone, you know, Barry, I believe, slots in as the number two option behind Bowie, at least among the guards. And they need him to step up. Um, the other areas of his game, you know, he, he's decent inside the arc. He's good rebounder, good defender. He's fine there. But to me, he needs to take a step back to what he had previously been as a deep shooter for this team to succeed. That, that's that got to happen. So he's a very important guy. Nick's a 6'6 junior and guy who really came on at the end of the season, Brooks Barnheiser. Uh, he was uh, came as a lot of... Ballyhoo is a recruit, didn't really do much for early on in the season or in his career, but really came out at the end of the season, really started becoming instrumental to their success. Uh, he was averaging 7.6 points a game and a little under five rebounds a game at 41, 31, and 84 shooting. But I think he was the, when we talk about, we talked about the effort many times. I felt like he was a guy who really brought it played for sure. hard. For and, sure. and that was a, and I think, you know, that spilled over into his teammates. And I think that was why he started playing a lot more minutes at the end of the season. Yeah, he was the guy who cut into Barron's role. And I think even though he's a little undersized at 6'6", I think you're you're likely looking at him as the starter this year at the four. And their improvement as a team, I think you can, there are a lot of reasons why it happened. But one of them for sure is Barnheiser emerging. He just, he, he really energized this group and yet he's not just a try hard guy. I think he's got a lot more to give as a matter of fact, you know, 31% from three to me watching him. I think he can shoot better than that. Potentially. Um, as you said, he was by Northwestern standards, fairly highly regarded recruit out of Indiana, but he didn't do much as a freshman. And then heading into last year, you didn't really know what you had. And as the year went on, just got better and better and better. He'd be a guy. I mean, I haven't done this for the Big Ten, but if you were compiling a list of, say, five guys that you thought were set to have a breakout season where they just really eclipse what they did the previous season, Barnheiser, I think, would be on that list for me. His numbers were good, but I'm not going to be surprised if we look up and see you know, he averages 12 and seven, something like that. I think he's fully, maybe even more. I think he's fully capable of it. And again, like as with Barry, they need him to take another step forward. Previous alluded to the next player is seven footer senior from Clarkson, Michigan, uh, Matt Nicholson. And he was the one we were talking about that being last season, you know, who would emerge as the replacement at the five spot. Yeah. And he, it, it wasn't clear early in the season, but by the end of the season, there was no question that he was, very capable. Uh, it's actually pretty good. So he averaged 6.3 points a game and 5.4 rebounds a game and a little over a block a game. Uh, but I think he also was very a steadying force inside, which was surprising for a guy who really hadn't played much prior to that in his career. Yeah, for sure. He was a key component. I mentioned, you know, the fact that they had some rim protection on this team made it possible for those guards to play as aggressively as they did trapping because they knew they had help behind them. If somebody right. broke the pressure and Nicholson was a huge part of that. The numbers are are solid, but they really don't do justice in my opinion to what kind of presence he had. He, 
I liked him in high school. We talked about him on this podcast at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I saw him play a lot at Clarkston and then in AAU. And I had kind of a hope that his recruitment would drag on long enough that maybe Michigan State could pick him up late if they had a slot and and had a need for a big. It didn't work out that way. He, he had an offer from Northwestern. He took it. It was a good move. Um, but it, it was also not surprising that it took him some time. It took him some time to adjust to the speed of the game at the collegiate level and to develop physically. But at, when he was a high school player, I really did think, well, this is the kind of guy you take a flyer on because he's got a chance. And sure enough, it has panned out for Chris Collins and company. It took a while. It took a couple of years for it to happen, but it's happened. And now, you know, you look at him and in my view, I see him as kind of a rock. It's not that he's going to go out and, and put up 15 and 10 every night, but you know what you're going to get from him. And primarily that means really good defense, not just at the rim either. He's become a very good big man, pick and roll defender. So I like him a lot. And for a team like this, it's so important to have a guy like him because his presence is going to enable those other, it's a domino effect. It's going to enable those other guys to play as aggressively as they probably need to in order for this team to be effective because he's the goalie behind them. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, with Pete Nance, of course, there wasn't much opportunity for him to play, but and and being behind Ryan Young. But you wonder too, in some respects, like if it would have been him and Ryan Young, uh, you know, you could you could see that his mobility gives him a huge advantage over Ryan Young. And well, no question, and, you know, right. And so that was that was always the, the talk, you know, Michigan State because there's question at the five, you know, before last season, wouldn't it be great had Ryan Young gone to Michigan State or something like that? And we sort of said that there's just no chance that. However, this is the kind of player you could imagine. At Michigan State, who that is played. that is why I kind of had a hope that it might work out as one of those kind of the way that you know a couple of years later that Carson Cooper ended sure. up coming yeah. in late. Um, I, I just kind of hoped there would be a fit because watching Nicholson when he was younger, yeah, he needed to get stronger. He needed to continue to develop as a lot of big kids did, develop his coordination, learn to finish a little bit better, learn to play without fouling, all those things. But what you could see even then was the combination of size and and athleticism. Now, he's not, you know, he's not uh, uh, Akeem Olajuwon or David Robinson. But he's a pretty good athlete for a kid his size. And generally speaking, that plays. Same thing with Carson Cooper. That's why I'm so bullish on Carson Cooper. He's 6'11", and he can move. That's a pretty, pretty good place to start. Next is 6'7", sophomore Nick Martinelli. He started to see more of, of a role throughout the season. He ended up averaging 10 minutes a game in 20 games played. Uh, but most of that came later in the season. Uh, he averaged 2.6 points a game and one and a half rebounds a game. He shot very, very well in very limited volume, 51, 50, and 50. Well, I guess not very well at the line. Uh, better than me, I suppose. But uh, so you know, him coming back is probably important. Important. <laughs> important I, I don't uh, know. Did he, did, he win, did he get to go to the Final Four? He didn't win tickets to the Final Four, no. Uh, but they did. Right. he did actually make it to the second round. So I guess that's something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this is a guy, an interesting player. He was pretty well regarded coming in last year. They liked him. And I believe he's an Illinois kid. Um, and I, I think they got to be reasonably happy with what they got out of him. Again, as with some, a couple of these other guys, his role just got bigger and bigger as the year went on. And by the end of the season, Martinelli was firmly in the rotation. And I think there's reason to think that he can be an effective player for them, likely off the bench, particularly if he shoots anywhere near those levels with a little more volume. That's a huge bonus for a team that, frankly, needs all the scoring it can find. <laughs> exactly. Uh, finally, for returning players, Luke Hunger, 6'10", 250-pound freshman, played only a few games uh, before he hurt his foot in December. Uh, so, you know, he whether he plays as a reserve for Nicholson is probably depends on his health in some respects. 
Yeah, and you know, we talked about Verdehoven for a guy who didn't put up huge numbers, still had an important role. That role is there to be filled, you know, and Hugger is the the obvious, the most obvious in my view, um, candidate or one of the two. Uh, most obvious candidates to fill that role. So there's an opportunity there. And at least physically, he's got, you know, he's got the the kind of um the kind of frame to suggest that he can play in the Big Ten right away. Um kind of a lost year for him in a sense due to the injury. But uh I think they're hoping that he can come in and maybe be a, at least a 10 minute a night kind of guy. And before we get to the newcomers onto the Wildcats, uh, I just want to remind you that this is one of the sponsors, great sponsors of the show is Nudge Printing. Nudge Printing run by Spartan grads Gabe and Brittany out of Portland, Michigan. They print fantastic sh- shirts and decals. Uh, our hoodie and a shirt you can buy on their website. You can go to tiffnots.com slash merchandise and you can find our, uh, our t-shirt uh, and our hoodie. You can also go to their website, nudgeprinting.com, and you can get any sort of Spartan gear. They have all kinds of really cool vintage stuff that's screen printed, so it is high quality, super comfortable shirts. I wear them all the time. They're the most popular shirts in my family, so we're always washing them, and they still look as good now as they did when we got them over a year ago. So you can check out Nudge Printing. 20% off, you mentioned the coupon code FINAL4 at checkout. Uh, You can't go wrong. They have a huge selection of things. It's for the everyday fan. And it's a way of supporting a Spartan grad. And again, you're getting great products. So I don't know. I don't know more to say about Nudge Printing, except it's great stuff and you won't regret it. Uh, you can get it. Again, check out our stuff at finalforceontheschedule.com slash merchandise if you want to get our logo and stuff. All right. So let's talk about the new newcomers to the Wildcats. We'll begin with 6'4 grad transfer from Princeton, Ryan Langburn. Or Borg, he, tra- he averaged 12.7 points a game for a team that made the tournament. He shot 42, 33, and 82 in the season. 40% from uh, deep as a sophomore, so potentially he's got a little bit more in him. Uh, and so, you know, this is a guy who I imagine they expect to come in and immediately contribute. Yeah, I think, you know, he would have been an outstanding pickup if Audige had returned and you were looking at him as the first guard off the bench. I would have been really bullish. I still think he could be an effective player and you can argue he's even more important now because he'd be the odds on favorite to step into Audige's role. Um, I think the big question is how quickly and how well does the shooting translate? Cause again, they need more in that area and there's the potential for it with Langborg. Um, as you said, 40% as a sophomore, but that was in the Ivy league. And we know, those percentages don't always translate neatly. So we'll, we'll just have to see what they get from him, but he's going to be a very important guy and likely a starter. Next would be Justin Mullins, a six, six sophomore transfer from Denver. He's originally from Oak park, Illinois. So he's coming home um, and he's averaging a little under 10 points a game on 52, 37 and 69 shooting out West uh, had 47 steals as well. So, you know, maybe this is a little bit of replacement for Adige as far as defensive intensity, um, and, uh, you know, again, this is a guy who uh, you, you'd expect would see some, see the floor quite a bit. Yeah. And they, again, they need that depth. So in, in losing Roper, um, and Audige, you know, two, two holes to fill. So I think adding Mullins was a, was a nice pickup and his length and an already demonstrated ability to, to turn people over certainly would seem to suggest he can fill a role for this team. You know, it's possible that he could push Langborg and, and, uh, and Martinelli and claim that, that third starting spot on the perimeter, but I'm, I'm more inclined to expect that he's going to be a reserve. But again, they, when you play an aggressive style, the way Northwestern wants to, um, I think it's helpful if you've got a little more depth, I think last year, they really were, they were doing it walking a very fine line because especially when injuries hit, they didn't have a lot of depth. So if Mullins is even capable of giving them, say, 12 to 15 good minutes off the bench, that's a huge bonus. And offensively, we'll see. The numbers at Denver were pretty solid. How do they translate? But I, I like the defensive potential. Next would be Blake Preston, a 6'9", 220-pound grand transfer from Liberty. 
He averaged 6.7 points a game on 68% shooting from, or 66% shooting from the floor, 40% from the line, not very good, uh, and also a little over five rebounds a game. So he's going to be a rotation guy, a guy off the bench, obviously. Yeah, and and I like him in two in two ways. Well, three ways. One, he's an experienced player. He's a grad transfer, so he's got a lot of experience. He's a mature player, right. a mature body. The other thing is, I think he gives them two potential areas he can help. One is if if Luke Hunger isn't up to it as a backup five, Preston's big enough that you can probably get away with playing him some minutes at the five. But the other thing is he gives you an option as a bigger four man. I, again, I really like Barnheiser. I'm, I'm bullish on him, but the fact is he's six, six. So mm-hmm. we know a lot of teams go undersized at the four, but a lot of teams don't. There are teams who have, you know, you look at somebody like Illinois with Coleman Hawkins or potentially Michigan state. If they're playing Xavier Booker at the four, those are guys right. who can still stretch the floor, but they're six eleven. Yeah. So having a bigger option like Preston, who's available at least to play play those minutes, um, is important. So I like what he could do in terms of adding some depth. Next, we'll go into the high school recruits for Northwestern. First is Jordan Clayton, six two point guard from Massachusetts. Uh, he played uh, along with Kurt Tang. Uh, so this is, I think, your as you'll see here, a reflection of this the. Preparation for the departure of Boo Booey after this year. Yeah, it's interesting, though. You know, three guys in this incoming recruiting class from Northwestern, and I would say this is the most anonymous recruiting class I can recall Chris Collins bringing in. Like, from the moment he got there, he seemed to upgrade Northwestern's recruiting from where it had historically been. And this class, all three of these guys we're going to talk about, we're just not heavily recruited. You know, Jordan Clayton played for Mass Rivals, which is the same program that Curtain plays for. That's a, considered a really good AAU program, so that's a positive. But he didn't have a bunch of high major offers, so I'm thinking he probably doesn't play a lot. My guess is, and maybe I'll be wrong, maybe, he, maybe one of these two freshmen will emerge and be able to handle some backup minutes, but my guess is... When Bowie needs a rest, which won't be often, I'm going to guess that Ty Berry gets that call rather than the freshman, but we'll see. Well, and the next point guard recruit is Parker Strauss, six foot four from California. And, uh, you know, again, this is, uh, I think, just a reflection of anticipation of Bowie leaving and trying to have some sort of depth there. Maybe not this year as much as next year. Yeah, and with both Clayton and Strauss, we'll, we'll just have to see what they actually are. But again, same profile, not heavily recruited. And so, you know, it's a bit of an unknown. Maybe they found a couple diamonds in the rough and these guys can actually play. But they're not coming in with the kind of expectations that um, some other guys they brought into the program have had. The last hoped uh, diamond in the rough would be six eight wing from West Virginia, Blake Barkley. Uh, again, a guy who's not heavily recruited and hoping that I guess he can stretch the defense a little bit at the four spot. Yeah, or, or the wing. I think they're hoping for some versatility there. But again, same story. Not a lot of expectations around him. So we'll have to see if any of these three guys manage to break through. I think the good news is, you know, they ought, they got enough with their three portal additions that they probably don't need to go deep with these freshmen. They've probably right. got enough to cover their rotation without those guys making significant contributions. Yeah. And so then overall looking at the Wildcats, uh, you know, we did not expect much from last year. They overperformed for sure. I mean, make, obviously they made the NCAA tournament. They won a game. They actually played pretty tough and almost made the second weekend. Uh, so if Chris Collins now who his, whose seat was maybe warm before is, I think, He's comfortably in, you know, where he belongs right now. But, uh, you know, I, can he catch lightning in a bottle two years in a row? Does he have enough with Boo Booey, I guess, to make the next step? Because, you know, if you if you think they're at 11, that is probably, again, like we mentioned before, uh, that you're only about two games away from being in tournament contention, right? I mean, you're not very far. Two more wins in the Big Ten, for instance, two more spots up. So you're not very far off of being outside looking in. You're you're probably bubble potential 
for sure. And the, and the, if the de- league is decent this year, so you know they they've got this they've got the tools there if they can kind of do the same thing they did last year. But I guess the question will be whether they can play def- defense the way they did last season. Well, that that's really where the starting point is to me is can they do the same things defensively that they did a year ago? If they can, absolutely, there's the potential for this to be a tournament team. But that's a big ask. And as I mentioned kind of at the beginning of this, the thing about Northwestern is because they were not good offensively in most respects, they walked a tightrope, you know? Um, it was, it was always every time out, it was going to be a very difficult scenario for them in terms of winning a game because they knew they didn't have a lot of firepower. So the defense was going to have to do its job. And, um, and that would be, you know, that would be the key. Uh, I think that this team does have enough um, to at least have the hope of being better offensively. And that will be, that will be a huge key. You know, if they can be better offensively, that takes a little bit of the heat um, off the defense to be as, uh, as effective. Then maybe you are talking about a repeat run to the dance. I, I don't rule them out at all. You know, this is um, a team with NCAA tournament potential, but just as was the case last year, a lot has to break right, you know, and yeah. that's that's a that's a tough position to be in where you look at it and you say, boy, you know, we really don't have much of a margin for error, and that's where I do feel that that Northwestern is. I don't think they're certainly not a team that can go out and just say well, we can just out talent people, right? That that's not, yeah. that's not what they are. Um, they're going to have to play their game, execute it well, you know, game in game out and, uh, and hope that at the end they've piled up enough to get into tournament consideration. Uh, I've got them 11th. Probably if that's how it finishes, they're probably on the outside looking in. But I don't think that's a given, and I don't think it's impossible at all that they could finish. Hey, you know, if you told me they finished seventh, it wouldn't be a total shocker. You know, I think they have enough potential to do that. I'd I'd be surprised by a repeat of second place. I could say yeah. that much. But beyond that, I you know, I, I'm I'm open <laughs> to the idea that there are a lot of possible um a lot of possible outcomes for this team, but I'll tell you this, it gets a lot easier if these guys can just find a way to shoot the ball better. Well, one of the hard things about this is even getting a good feel for the rest of the the league too. There's so much turnover within these teams as we've you know noticed the last few years with the, especially now with the transfer portal being as active as it is, it's hard to get a good read on, you know, where Northwestern stacks up against the other teams because you you're only just guessing as far as these grad transfers and how the you know the cohesiveness yeah, yeah. of these teams, right? So you say eleventh, but I mean it's like you said, it, it could easily be seventh, and it wouldn't seem like that much of a difference, right? <laughs> In some yeah, respects, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of parity at this at this level of the conference, I think, as we're going to see as we roll through the next few teams, and even you know even Nebraska that we talked about previously. Um, you know, could Nebraska finish a few slots higher than I've got them? Oh yeah. If there's a potential, if enough things break the right way. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm hedging it based on what I know and what I'm assuming they'll get from the guys they brought in. Um, but it's an open question and I think there's the yeah. potential for them to outperform this. That's for sure. Yeah, I feel like as far as the you know of the first four teams, the bottom two teams, Penn State and Minnesota, I think you feel fairly confident that they're going to be at the bottom two of the league. Probably, uh, you know, maybe Penn State moves right. up. I think Minnesota, you feel pretty confident that they're going to be last place, or if they're lucky, thirteenth. I'd agree. But these teams, there's a lot more movement and potential for Northwestern Nebraska that they could move up, you know, up more than other teams. You know, that brings me to one of the questions that I've been thinking about is that, you know, one of the ways of evaluating the league 
uh, you know, the, the way the league gets valued is by how they play in the non-conference before the big, the regular season. Cause once the regular season starts, you know, that you're, you're judged on who you're playing, but it it can't change much because it's only, it's all determined on how you did before you were in the conference play. And one of the big things that, that the big 10 had is that they had the ACC big 10 challenge where you could get an evaluation play. Everyone had to play a usually a decent team in the ACC that you've lost that now. And you still have the multi-team tournaments, you know, battle for Atlantis, Maui invitation, all those sorts of things that teams participate in. Do you think it'll be a little bit harder getting a, a, a read on the big 10 by, by eliminating the, the big 10 ACC challenge and that they'll have trouble getting, you know, evaluated as highly as they had in the past? No, I don't think so because I think, and I, and to be honest, I haven't, I haven't looked at Northwestern's non-conference schedule, um, but I'm going to assume that they're playing at least a couple of games against very legitimate opposition, and that's the case for most Big Ten teams. So the the loss the loss of the ACC challenge hurt mostly in the sense that that was a locked-in game that now they've got to go out and find a replacement for in terms of another high-level opponent. I. I will be somewhat surprised if we don't see um, some sort of replacement for that event in years to come. Um, you know, they they do keep in mind the Big Ten does still have the Gavit games now that that has fewer teams participating, whereas the ACC Challenge everybody played. That's not the case mm-hmm. with Gavit games, but. Um, you know, that does give an opportunity. You mentioned the the multi-team events, the holiday tournaments, et cetera. I, I suspect that Big Ten, every Big Ten team is going to have enough opportunities to demonstrate what they are in the non-conference before they hit league play. And then, you know, then always, as is the case most every year, once you get into Big Ten play, because everybody is fairly well regarded, um, you're going to be mostly playing high impact games. So right, you're, yeah. you're always going to have opportunities to have a meaningful win and, and few opportunities to take a bad loss. Do you think that this conference matchups is going to be something we may see again? Like, you know, the, say the big 12 or, well, I think that's, <laughs> I guess yeah. Pac 12 that's gone. So the, look, you the, know, what's going to happen? The SEC and the big 12 have, you you can be excused if you don't realize it because they don't do a very good job promoting it, but they've had, they've had a, um, an attempt at replicating the big 10 ACC challenge going on for several years now. And so I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. If that just stays in place, um, I, th- I believe the ACC, actually, I don't think it will because I think what happened is I think the ACC and the SEC are going to play. I believe that's what's happened. I think so. so. I think you're right, yeah. So it would seem that perhaps the Big 12 is there. And honestly, from a quality perspective, you can make a pretty good argument that especially the last five years or so, the Big 12 has been as good as any league in the country. So yes. that could that would be, uh, you know, in the – respect of your what you've been talking about you know having meaningful games boy that would be a hell of a thing it's not in place this year i'll be surprised if the big 10 doesn't look to do something like that and or perhaps um elevate the gavit games maybe is another route they could take to do this um meaning just play more games um that makes sense on a on one level because of the uh, broadcasting partners, because the Big East also has deal with Fox. So right. um, I could see that happening. But regardless, yeah, I think the opportunities are going to be there for any Big Ten team. Yeah, it'll be interesting how things shake out, because in, in many respects, as you alluded to, the broadcast partners are almost more instrumental in this in these uh, tournaments than oh, yeah. probably the leagues themselves. And ESPN, it, as you know, if you're sort of following the news with Disney, that it is a, um, it it may be a evolving. I guess we'll say <laughs> that ESPN yep. may not be part of Disney, or may be sold off, uh, or they may be partial partners. With all sorts of names are being bandied about, and so what what you may think of ESPN's relationship is, it may change uh, going forward. 
Uh, well, uh, for sure. And in fact, you know, with this latest round of expansion, um, bringing in Washington and Oregon, one of the things that's been talked about is that, you know, people had assumed that the Big Ten and ESPN's relationship was dead. And that is apparently not the case. There is there is talk that they may add another broadcast partner. From what I have understood, that would most prominently show up, not in football terms, but in basketball. So, yeah, you don't rule anything out. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there and we'll see you back in a couple days with the number 10 team. And uh, also just a reminder that, that we do have a contest, the Beat Rod contest again this year. So send in your predictions on how the Big Ten standings will be, and we'll use the tiebreakers they use for the Big Ten tournament. So just make it thing simple. So 1 through 14, where you think the teams will finish, you have to have those in before the first Big Ten game is played in December. Uh, so tiebreaker is uh, how many points are scored by Michigan State against Michigan this season. They do play twice, so keep that in mind. So until next time, the Final Four is on the schedule. Go green.